You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name is Amelia and today we have a very cool guest on the show. We have Dr. Nicole, who is a senior research fellow and statistician. Welcome to the show, Dr. Nicole. Hi, Amelia. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Awesome. I always love, love starting with a bit of excitement. I don't know if this is going to be an easy question or not, but what is your job? Absolutely. I should be able to answer this question. So officially, I am a senior research fellow based at the Queensland University of Technology or QUT based in Brisbane. So sort of as my official job title suggests, I spend my days as a researcher full time. So I guess this is quite different to a traditional academic university role that's normally split between doing research and a bit of teaching. I spend my days doing research, which is funded by sort of a range of different government grants. The more common title that I prefer to go by on a day-to-day basis is a statistician. So at QUT, I work with a group that specialises in an area known as health services research. So health services research is all about the study of how our health system operates, so both in terms of how patients might interact with different services. So this could be anything from a hospital or a GP or what we would call allied health, so physio, dental, sort of the full gamut of services, but also how healthcare systems are organised and how patients move through that system. So my role within that group is more on the data analysis side. So we work across a range of different projects where we try and understand how patients are currently interacting with the health system and how it's currently organised as sort of a way to sort of understand or potentially identify areas for improvement in the way that services are delivered. And in some cases, we might be interested in evaluating new ways of delivering healthcare. So it might be a new technology or a new drug, using data and analysis to try and understand if we were to incorporate this into the healthcare system, what would that look like? Does it improve patient outcomes? How does it go in terms of the cost to the healthcare system and sort of wider changes to the system as well? Yeah, so health services research is an incredibly diverse area. So I guess it's quite a little bit different to what some researchers' career paths look like where they focus on you know, a single technology or a single disease. We sort of look at quite a wide variety of different topics. And I think this health services research in general is really important because you know, at the end of the day, the purpose of healthcare is to improve outcomes for patients. So if we're able to identify sort of areas for improvement, for whether it's all patients within, say, a hospital or patients with complex disease or complex needs, being able to use data to inform decisions that improve an outcome or an experience for that patient is really important. There's also an economic argument for analysing the healthcare system as well. So in Australia, we operate under a system known as universal healthcare, which basically means that the vast majority of the services that we're able to access are funded through the government, so through taxpayer money. And so as a result, lucky for us, we can actually access a lot of services for free. So I guess sort of an implication of that is that with any type of spending, we don't have a bottomless pit of money to spend on absolutely every new technology and every single service. So it's really important to understand, particularly when we are trialling new drugs or technologies or changes to the healthcare system, to really try and evaluate how does it change the outcome for a patient but also how much does it cost and sort of what are sort of the flow-on implications of that. All of that. 
was fascinating. And I think particularly in this sort of 2020 to 2022 kind of world that we're living in, it's very topical. It sort of sounds like you've got a tool, and in this case, it's statistics, analytics kind of skills, and you're then applying that to this whole field. So rather than going like super narrow on one element of the healthcare system or something, you've got this toolkit that you can apply to understand all sorts of different things. I imagine whether it's ICU or triaging patients, like it's it's a different way of approaching research kind of. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a unique career pathway, I suppose, especially when I sort of look back on all the different projects that I've done in this area, kind of like the bird's eye view or the analogy that I like to use is it just looks like this really tangled up ball of wool. There's no sort of common theme in terms of the types of problems that I'm addressing or the types of diseases that I'm focusing on. But as I sort of unpick that a little bit, I guess really at the end of the day, statistics is a branch of mathematics. And what statistics is really aiming to do is to translate a problem using mathematical language and connecting that with data to transform data into information. So it's really that process. And so once you sort of see that common thread, that tangled up ball of wool starts to untangle itself. So, yeah, so I do, I'm very fortunate to work on a variety of lots of different topics. I think, you know, for some people, especially, you know, when you start a new project, you sometimes get that feeling that you're starting from scratch again. Some examples of projects that I've worked on. So I've worked on Parkinson's disease. So that was part of my PhD. I've worked on infectious diseases and COVID-19. I've even worked on the use of genetics in cancer. So there's always that feeling when you start a new project that restart that process of understanding the problem. What does the data look like? What are the particular questions that the clinician or the doctor wants to answer? But for me, I think that's the really exciting part of being a statistician is that you get to learn about lots of different parts of health and medical research. But at the end of the day, you have that common thread of using maths to understand the data or sort of how the data collected or how the data are generated and then trying to analyze that to create a decision or to inform a decision that could potentially improve outcomes for a patient, which is really cool, I think. Oh, I think it's awesome. And I can see the appeal because it'd be just harder to get bored. Like you have the novelty of learning something new and you get to meet different people and you'd be constantly like, oh, I didn't necessarily realize that was an issue, but I reckon, yeah, using these tools that I've got, you could possibly solve this problem. I reckon that's cool. Yeah, I think sort of a potential downside is that I quite often have a lot of different projects on the go. So you do have to switch your context a little bit. But I think I just love the variety. And yeah, as you said, the range of people that you get to meet and the things that you learn about health and medicine is, I think it's really cool. I reckon. Have you got any particular projects that you could talk about or share? Yeah, so a really interesting project I was involved in a, in a few years ago was in an area known as healthcare-associated infections. So healthcare-associated infections is quite a broad term, but it basically describes a type of complication or an adverse event that a patient might experience in hospital where for some reason or another they, are, they acquire an infection. So thankfully, a lot of these infections are treatable, but in some cases they can actually cause quite serious complications for the patient, which means that they spend longer in hospital and they're at sort of higher risk of needing further care. So there's lots of different ways that a patient can acquire one of these infections. But what we were particularly interested in for this study was actually the role of hospital cleaning 
to reduce the number of infections that were being reported. So, you know, when you think of cleaning, it's probably not sort of a very fancy technology. So when people think about, you know, healthcare technology, they might think about a new machine or a new drug. But in this case, what we're really interested in is because sort of our knowledge of how infections spread is constantly improving, as is the way we actually clean the environment or keep the environment safe. So the study that we were involved in was all about how do we give hospitals the right support and the right resources to ensure that they're applying best practices or the most up-to-date evidence around hospital cleaning as a way of reducing or even preventing the spread of healthcare-associated infections. So I was involved as a statistician in this study. Um, So the way that we collected these data was through what we call a randomised control trial. So we enrolled 11 hospitals from across Australia, so across all different states, and we randomised the time at which we introduced these new resources and support to help the hospital improve their cleaning. Yeah, so each hospital received what we call an intervention at a random time. We then collected all these data on the number of infections that hospitals reported before and after they received the intervention. And what we actually found is that hospitals not only improved the way that they actually cleaned, but the number of infections that they were reporting fell as well, which is a really, really significant result. I mean, it's probably not something that would make national headlines, I suppose, because it is cleaning at the end of the day, but especially from a patient safety and a quality of care perspective, by being able to prevent infections, you're keeping patients safe and you're also saving hospitals money in some cases as well, because these types of infections are quite complicated and really expensive to treat as well. So these are the types of infections that may not actually respond to common antibiotics that we are very lucky to have every day and they might stay longer in hospital as well so the longer they stay in hospital that's actually a hospital bed that's being used where another patient could be using that resource yeah so that was actually a really rewarding project to work on for sure that's fantastic and I know you said it isn't probably headline worthy news but it should be because just because, like, sometimes science is considered boring and then that boring stuff doesn't get, like, as much attention as it should in the news because it's not just like, oh, we've solved cancer kind of thing. Yeah. But it's something that is going to make a difference to people's lives. And that's kind of cool. You don't necessarily, when you're studying maths in high school, you don't make that connection that what you're doing could actually have an impact in actual people's lives. And that's awesome. It's a real world impact. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. And it's something that's so simple as well to just providing people with the right support and the resources to do their job better and to see that actually follow through to better outcomes for people. Yeah, it's definitely something that I didn't sort of appreciate when I started out in this career too, sort of the types of impacts that you can have. That's a really interesting one. And obviously, again, very topical right now. I imagine you're going to have a lot of data in, from the last couple of years that people will be wanting to do all sorts, answer all sorts of questions about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, actually, now that you mentioned that, so another project that I've been involved in for almost maybe a year and a half, two years now, is around COVID-19 and sort of data analysis around COVID-19. So I'm very fortunate to be a statistician with an initiative known as the COVID-19 Critical Care Consortium. So this was an initiative that started off in Brisbane 
But what it actually is is a global network. At the moment, it's standing at more than 380 hospitals across the world. And so the purpose of the consortium is to basically create a central data repository on patients who have what we would call severe COVID-19 infection. So these are patients who are admitted to hospital and then ultimately are admitted to intensive care or what some people would know as critical care. So quite often it might mean that they need to be put onto a ventilator or need sort of further management or support to manage their infection. That's an incredibly complex data set that I get to work with. So as part of this consortium, I work with collaborators across the world. So even just the other day, I was on a meeting with doctors from Hong Kong, the US and South Africa, talking about analyses or sort of research questions that we could query using these, this data set. So my role as a statistician in this work is to, of course, process and analyse that data, working alongside clinicians. And what the focus of our analysis is, it's not so much on sort of an area that we call prediction modelling. So in terms of if a patient turns up to ICU, they're this old, they have these sort of pre-existing conditions, what is their expected outcome? What we're more focused on is sort of the patient experience within the ICU. So things such as how long do they actually stay in ICU? On average, how long do patients need a ventilator? And those sorts of things and complications as well. So how does a patient's risk of developing further complications in the ICU and what impact does that have on their outcome? So again, that's quite a wide range or diversity of research questions that we're looking at. But I think the really rewarding part for me is that interaction with the medical experts across the world. So for me, I've always seen data as more than numbers and sort of understanding the context for me as a statistician is absolutely everything because at the end of the day, if I'm analysing data to answer a research question, I want to make sure that it's sort of fit for purpose, if you like, or it actually answers a meaningful clinical question that could potentially inform future decisions by clinicians and doctors or even change the way the health services are delivered. And there's something so heartening, like obviously COVID is tough, I guess, for everyone, but there's something so heartening about the thought of all these different people pulling their data, pulling their resources. Like it's bad, but there's a little bit of sunshine and warmth that comes from that, just knowing that hopefully through the numbers we'll get something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's really that collective effort on the part of experts from around the world contributing their time and their data as well and then sort of seeing that process through the analysis and then the communication of those findings as well and again the interpretation of that data and context as meaningful information. Yeah, it's sort of one of those once-in-a-lifetime opportunities as a statistician really to build these connections that I otherwise never would have had and work on like a global scale problem such as COVID-19 is something hopefully I don't see again, but I've definitely learned a lot from it for sure. Yes, we all obviously hope it won't happen again and that it'll wrap up soon, but also like obviously it's an unpleasant pandemic, but the speed at which we can gather data, the speed at which we can collate it and share it, like, you know, you think back to the Spanish flu, you couldn't have had people from all around the world having a conversation about it simultaneously. You'd have to send letters. Like the idea that we can move so quickly with this information, that's a good thing? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, on top of that, because we have the technology now to pull this data together so quickly, the data is constantly changing as well. So the data set that I work with is actually updated every day. 
So that could be new patients being recruited to the database or it could be patients who are currently in the ICU and they have a new day's worth of data available for analysis. So in some ways, the data set is a bit of a moving target, but you know, when you go down to the really granular level, you can actually see how the management of patients has changed over the course of the pandemic. And accounting for that in the analysis becomes really complex. So a lot of maths is involved. But yeah, it's an opportunity to learn new ways of analysing that type of data as well. Yeah, and then you've got new variants and it's all go, really, isn't it? And obviously changes in government policy influence this, da 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 Absolutely. And even, you know, the basic problem of accounting for differences between countries. So, you know, because you have this time element and different countries experience peaks at different times throughout the pandemic, so trying to characterise that behaviour or changes across the pandemic mathematically and then connecting that to data has been really interesting. We'll hang out looking for some good papers coming from you. Absolutely. Stay tuned. (laughs) Yeah, it's not not all over. Now, we have something a bit special for this episode. We've got some listener questions that I, I can throw at you. Yeah, let's do it. So we... Curious if you can think of any examples of that you know of where statisticians have gone into industry. Like, do you know of industrial statisticians who do statistics? Like, what sort of jobs are there outside of academia? That's a good question. I think, so for my entire career so far, I've primarily been based within research. I guess sort of I have quite a unique position because of the type of research that I do. I quite often interact with government agencies and industry. So, of course, sort of within the government sector, you have large organisations such as the ABS, the Australian Institute for Health and Welfare that have whole teams of statisticians um, working on sort of government reporting. Within industry too, I guess sort of these days, we don't often see sort of a statistician as the default job title in industry. So quite often a statistician will be called a data scientist or a data analyst. I've even heard data engineer a few times. All of these job titles have statistics at their core, but I guess in terms of the roles that these types of uh, careers involve, it would be processing data, visualizing data is a big part of statistics as well. And for me, that's quite a powerful form of communication of data and sort of the analysis component as well, depending on the needs of the industry or the type of work that they do would, I guess, tailor the type of analyses that a statistician would do on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And I think if you type data scientist into LinkedIn, seek any of those things, as opposed to statistician, you'll find a bucket load more jobs. Absolutely. It sounds cool though, right? Data scientist. It does. It does. Even data engineer. I think that sounds cool. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. This is a big question. How good do you have to be at maths to be a good statistician? Like if you say bombed out on, I've forgotten what it's called in Queensland, math C or uh, yeah, like do you have to be real good at maths or just like okay-ish? I'm going to answer this with a bit of a confession. So I remember in high school, so I'm not sure if it's like this today, but I remember sort of your typical maths test would be divided into two parts. So the first part would always be like a technical testing your skills on certain techniques, which I always did quite well at. So I thought for that reason, I'm really enjoying maths. And then the second part was all about, I think they called it problem solving. 
the section of the exam. I was absolutely dreadful at the problem-solving section of the maths exam. And so thinking back on it, it's not that I didn't enjoy that process of problem-solving, but it was probably sort of that testing environment and the time constraints that were often put on you to solve a problem quickly. It could also in part it was the types of applications that you were presented with as well. So for all my career, I focused on sort of health data and health research. And it wasn't really until university that I sort of continued to take maths and quantitative like subjects and got more exposure to that problem solving approach. And so just sort of acknowledging that problem solving is a process as well. It's not always just one way to an answer, which I think is quite a common misconception about mathematics is that it's always black and white and there's always one solution to everything. So I think it's definitely a skill that can be learned. Yeah, so to go back to the question, you don't have to be excellent at mathematics in school. There's always further opportunities to sort of grow or learn that skill and get more experience. If that's something, if that process of problem solving and critical thinking is something that you're passionate about. Yeah. And it sort of sounds like, well, obviously the things that we learn in school aren't necessarily how they're taught or used in uni and beyond. And having that extra context, like if you're struggling with something and there's no context, why are you going to keep going? Whereas if you're struggling with something, there's context, you actually want to solve a problem, you'll push through. Yeah, absolutely. I think sort of my experience in high school as well with mathematics, whilst I did enjoy it, I did very much get the impression that it was quite technical and I guess sort of mechanistic in nature as well. I mean, you spend some time learning about in your approach, say, you know, calculus um, or algebra or one sort of, you know, simple algebra, you'd spend a few weeks on that and then you would move on to the next method and so as you would continue. So I think, you know, as human beings, we have this natural tendency to extrapolate. So if that's sort of our experience in high school, that's what, mathematics and by extension statistics must look like the further you go down that path so for me I was quite surprised that it's as I went through university it was actually quite the opposite so throughout my undergraduate degree I did a bachelor of mathematics the vast majority of my subjects were around sort of computation or coding or putting algorithms into practice but a lot of the emphasis was actually on the problem solving process itself so starting with a data set or a general problem And then working through, okay, how can we actually take this data, understanding its quirks or its common features or distinctive features, and actually go through that process of, okay, how do we actually express that mathematically? And then how do we code that to take the data and actually transform it into a result or a finding? So for me, that's quite the opposite of what I experienced in high school, I have to say. Yeah, right. Okay, good to know. We, I don't know how we can get that university experience like translated to high school students so that they know that this isn't the end like yeah that's right and I think this is where science communication and outreach becomes really important too so I remember going through you know primary school and even high school I don't think I ever met a statistician or a mathematician so we would have career days and so on but I never actually saw someone who pursued maths as their career so I think looking back and that's sort of part of what drives my science communication as well as actually getting out there and saying, yes, this is what maths looks like in high school, but if you enjoy it and continue with it, these are the types of really interesting projects that you can be involved in. And just the diversity of the career paths within maths and stats as well is probably something that could be advertised a lot better, I have to say. Yeah, it does for some reason evoke this sort of impression of like a kind of narrow, stuffy set of options, which 
is sad because obviously it's not. Yeah, yeah. I think sort of in my experiences talking to others, so I talk a lot to medical students and sort of PhD students who are wanting to do analysis. So quite often the the initial conversation that I have with them is very focused on which statistical method do I have to use to get the answer that I'm looking for. And what I try to do through my communication as a statistician is actually to sort of flip that question on its head. So quite often we focus on sort of the technical side of statistics and which method is best and why are you choosing this one over the other. But fundamentally at the end of the day, statistics isn't about just applying techniques to your data. It's actually about understanding your data. So until you actually understand your data itself, what are the distinctive features that characterize your data? What is the question that you're trying to answer? And why has your why have you collected your data in such a way to help you address that question? So once we've sorted that out, the methods in a way sort out themselves. So I think, yeah, a big shift in perspective that is really important, I think, within the stats community and sort of brought more broadly within STEM is actually shifting that emphasis to understanding your data then we can discuss what types of methods are most useful from an analysis perspective. And what are reasonable questions to actually ask of that data? Because as we know, not all data, well, all data is not perfect. So Yeah, yeah. And even the simple question of can your data answer the question that you're interested in? Because quite often the way that you collect data, it might be what we call retrospective. So you're actually going back in time, going through, say, hospital records or other types of data systems and assembling a data set. So in some cases, it it can answer your question, but in other times, you might actually have to reframe based on the type of information that you have available. And that's sort of a a discussion in itself too. That makes sense. So thank you, Patrick, for throwing in some of those questions, and I'll see if I can weave some of the other ones in throughout the interview. Are you able to give us a bit of an outline of what your average day looks like, Nicole? Good question. So first of all, I should say... As a researcher, and this is probably common to what a lot of researchers say, is no two days are the same. So typically, (laughs) I realize this goes against every single productivity book there is out there. I always start my day by checking my emails. Ah, shocking. (laughs) I know, right? So the reason that I do is because I'm working across quite a few projects, a lot of them are actually with overseas collaborators. So normally, you know, time zone difference throughout the night, there might be Uh, queries from collaborators about some analyses that I've done or sort of advice on next steps for a particular project that I'm working on. And so by doing this at the start of the day, it sort of helps me plan out the types of projects that I would prioritise for the remainder of the day. Sort of beyond that, I quite often, as I mentioned, I have quite a lot of projects on the go at any one time. So quite often these might be at different stages of what I would call sort of the process or the pipeline of analysis. So sort of at the start of that pipeline might be around planning a new study. So quite a common part of my role is when researchers are trying to apply for grant funding or have a new idea for a study, as part of that process, they need to talk about how they'll collect their data, how much data they can feasibly collect, and if all goes well, what types of statistical methods are they planning to use to analyse that data to address that question. So I'm very involved at that sort of initial stage or that planning stage, helping others to devise sort of those descriptions around data and analysis. I guess sort of beyond that, I also have projects at various parts of the data processing and analysis um, steps of that pipeline. So probably 
the coolest part of my job is actually the data processing. It's something that I quite enjoy. So these days, you know, data sets are massive. So if you think about a hospital system, you're quite often analyzing data on tens of thousands of patients. So there's no way you could actually go through and review each of those patients manually to try and assess sort of the quality of data and address sort of things like missing data and so on. So I use code in quite a systematic way to try and assess that data, try and tidy it up. Sometimes it might even be within a hospital, you're trying to connect different data sets together. So from the ED or from pharmacy or different parts of the hospital. So we use a lot of code and analysis to join all that together. And then there's the analysis part itself. So trying out different methods to address the research question. I guess sort of the final part of that sort of process is the communication aspect as well. So quite often a statistician has two roles. It's sort of taking the lead on the analysis, but it's also that reporting of the results as well to make sure that they're being interpreted correctly, but also acknowledging limitations because all methods and sort of approaches in statistics at the end of the day have their strengths and weaknesses. So a big part of my job when I work on these projects is actually communicating those, um, whether it be in reports or journal articles and so on. So that's really a big part of my every day. I do sort of have, you know, the usual meetings throughout the day as well. So this could be with different collaborators on new or existing projects. I work with some research students as well. So quite often they take charge of the statistical analysis and I play that advisory role to help them sort of navigate them through that process. Or it could even be students who I don't directly supervise but come from other parts of the university as well seeking advice on analysis. So that's a really cool part of my job as well is sort of helping people at that process sort of navigate through the statistics and show them that it's really not that scary as they think. <laughs> okay, so you've sort of obviously it's going to shift a little bit every day, but it sounds like a huge amount of project management actually as well. Yeah, that's definitely a skill that I have learned over time. So I'm very fortunate to have research managers within my universities that sort of help with that day-to-day project management. But yeah, especially when you have a lot of projects on the go and quite often they're in different areas or on different topics, keeping track of those is really important as well. How have you ended up in this job? Like you've, you've sort of touched on it a little bit, but say what was your path from high school to where you are now? Yeah, so when I left high school, so I mentioned earlier that I never really got a chance to talk to people within mathematics and statistics. So I took a very logical view when choosing my undergraduate degree and I thought, well, I really like chemistry. I really like sort of English and communication. So I started off in a combined science and communication degree just through process of elimination really of what I enjoyed and what I thought I was good at. So in sort of my first year of university, as most people quite often do, they need to take first year maths and statistics units. And when I enrolled in my first year stats course, and something that I'll never forget actually. So it was the very first lecture and the lecturer started with a story about the polio vaccine. And so she spent a really long time talking about the human impacts of polio and the history of polio and how this led to the development of the first vaccine. And sort of she took that conversation through from the problem to, okay, that decided to develop a vaccine. How are we actually going to measure the impacts of this vaccine on how many people develop polio. So then she sort of took that conversation through 
the data collection phase, and then ultimately how that data was analysed and interpreted. That first lecture has really stuck with me. I think, first of all, it was the first time I'd seen a health-based application of statistics. And I think also sort of that just that emphasis on the problem and that process of taking the problem, collecting data, and then analysing it to address the question that was being posed. So it's very much focused on that context and the process as opposed to the technical aspects, which, of course, the lecturer then ultimately went into, which is, you know, the objective of the course, of course. But, yeah, so I think from that moment on, so I finished that unit and then I started to look for more mathematics units to do. And then I ultimately switched universities and degrees. So I enrolled in a Bachelor of Mathematics. I think it was the very first year I was offered at my university at the time. I think from that it was a fairly linear path for me. So I completed my undergraduate degree. I then met my honours supervisor and continued with an honours degree in mathematics for a year after my undergraduate and then went straight into a PhD in statistics. So it's sort of one of those aha moments or right place at the right time all the way back in first year that really changed the course of what my career was going to be. And I really haven't left the university system since. I just love it so much. That's fantastic. It it really does sound like it's all about context and like clicking that you can make a difference and solve some problems like polio. Yeah, absolutely. Do you happen to be aware of any other paths? Like if someone was into statistics but didn't necessarily want to do a PhD? Yeah, so sort of beyond the undergraduate level. So there is a great initiative in Australia known as the Biostatistics Collaboration of Australia. So biostatistics is basically the application of statistics within sort of health and medical research broadly. So there's sort of the Masters of Biostatistics route that you could take. But I think more broadly, because statistics is sort of one of those disciplines that's taught throughout all of the letters in STEM. So if you're an engineer, you have some exposure to statistics. If you're a medical student, you have to go through statistics as part of your coursework. And so quite often what I see are people from sort of related fields like medicine and psychology. They've sort of completed that training and have worked in the field for a few years. And sort of as part of that, those few initial years of their career, they've had more exposure to statistics and analysis. And then they themselves have this, aha, I actually really enjoy statistics now, now that I can see how it's being used in context and for problem solving. So quite often we see people retrain in statistics, having spent a bit of time in those related fields. Yeah, they sort of have this, not again, this non-linear career path that brings them to the discipline. And I think that's really exciting for the field as well, having those different perspectives, um, all those different experiences with statistics sort of adding to that context again. Yeah, definitely. All that background knowledge is obviously going to help them leap forward. And I'll just jump in and say you can also look into all the data science, data analytics, like there's boot, well, everything from boot camps to masters, like there's no shortage. They're, they're all like related. Yeah, definitely. I will say that there aren't enough statisticians in the world, I have to say. Yeah, we always have a lot of work to do. So anyone who is thinking about a career in statistics, now should hire. <laughs> we need you. <laughs> yep, I think maybe not most, at least half of the people on this podcast have been like, yeah, we've got a lot of data. Yeah, what do we Please do with help. it? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we'll just chuck it in deep storage somewhere. <laughs> so what is the coolest bit of your job? 
Oh, excellent question. I would have to say it's a combination of the types of people I have the privilege of working with and just that combination of skills that I use as well. So, you know, sort of the obvious skills that I would use are that problem solving, the mathematical reasoning aspect, but there's also quite a creative element to statistics as well. So I quite often hesitate when I talk about creativity and statistics because, you know, there's that saying, lies, lies and damn statistics. You know, the impression that people get creative with their statistics, but I guess what they, I mean by that, and I guess this is sort of a common thread to research as well, you need creative thinking to come up with new ways of solving either old problems or identifying new problems and potential solutions to move a field forward. So take health and medical research, for instance. Within sort of my day-to-day work as a statistician as well, there's an element in creativity in terms of how I communicate information as well. Um, So visualisation is a big part of what I do. Some of my colleagues would probably say I'm a little bit too obsessed and nerdy when it comes to visualisation. But for me, it's a really effective way of getting a key message across or even just how to present data that presents, that gives sort of a decision maker or a doctor a really clear and simple message that they can take and integrate within their work or help move the field forward. So there's a lot of different ways of doing that. And I think because we all sort of have our different experiences with statistics, um, trying to be really clear about sort of the question and what we did to address that question is quite an exercise in communication as well. Because I'm not sure about you, but I think one of the quirks or potentially annoying things about statistics is because it's sort of taught in lots of different areas of STEM, we quite often call the same thing different names. So I have absolutely no idea how to how we actually address that. Uh, but quite often I'll be in conversations with people where we're calling something a very different thing. And it's only after a lot of conversation that we actually realize we're on the same page. So there's an element of you know, clear communication that's involved as part of my job. But I think that, yeah, I enjoy the challenge of that communication as well. And for me, it's quite a learning process too. So acknowledging that everyone has these different experiences with stats and sort of coming to sort of being on the same page and making sure that we're interpreting things appropriately. I love it. I love the idea of like, obviously creativity is a, a force for good rather than alternative truths or something. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You, so you don't have to be dry and dull, I think is the message that this podcast is really trying to get across. Absolutely. Main message of the day. <laughs> have you got any advice for young people who are considering a career in stats and they're just not really sure? Like any advice? I think given my personal experience, My simple advice would be try and talk to as many people in the field as possible. So, you know, at the simplest level, if you're in high school, see if you can talk to your teacher about bringing in potential guests to talk about the career pathways. There could even be opportunities at career days or when you're selecting your courses for university. Quite often you can go to a university open day. So if you are interested in mathematics, there's sort of opportunities for you to talk to real-life researchers and teachers And quite often we're very willing to share sort of what our career path was. That would be my main advice, I think. I think also these days in sort of the age of social media where we have Instagram and Twitter and everything else, more researchers are putting themselves out there and actually talking about their career experiences and what they do on a daily basis. 
and even podcasts as well. So these days there are a lot of sort of data science and statistics podcasts. Some of them don't necessarily talk about career pathways, but that researchers might join podcasts to talk about the types of research that they do. So trying to find those opportunities to get, collect as much intelligence or information, I guess, as possible about the possibilities of statistics is a great start. I love that advice. I mean, it's great for all careers, but I think especially for this one where it's just not really as visible and I can definitely see the the value of listening to some of those data science podcasts, even if you don't understand some of the details, you'll get the gist of how it's being applied and the kinds of people you might get to work with, the kinds of problems you might get to solve. Yeah, exactly. I think when we talk about someone being a statistician, we kind of undersell the diversity of the types of statisticians that are out there. So for me, I work in health and medical research, but there are environmental statisticians who deal with problems such as climate change. There's financial statisticians as well. There's even sort of statisticians that focus purely on developing new ways of analysing data as well. And this is incredibly important because, you know, sort of as we move ahead, the types of data that we're starting to see are becoming larger and much more complex. So methods that we might have been using 10 to 15 years ago may not be enough to actually address sort of these emerging complexities and the types of data that we're using. So a lot of statisticians purely focus on how can we advance sort of the theory and the technical side of statistics to address questions with these new and exciting sources of data. I hadn't even thought about that. That's a whole a whole world. Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> Are there any myths that you would like about whether it's about statistics or research, whatever, that you would like to take this opportunity to do a bit of myth-busting? Statistics is really cool, I have to say. Isn't that a myth, that we're dry and boring? I I guess it's a myth. Well, and and there's a whole lies lies in statistics thing. Yeah, that it's boring. I think we've busted that just listening to you. Obviously, you're not boring. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, in terms of myths, I guess, I think... The general public may not realise how often statistics actually appears in everyday life. So even if we take sort of the COVID-19 pandemic as an example, even looking at the way that news, news channels are reporting how the pandemic is unfolding, what, we're actually, what we've really seen in the past few years is sort of an increase in the way that data is communicated. So whether or not that's on fancy infographics or interactive dashboards that newsreaders communicate with, or even the concept of, you know, the flattening of the curve, that was a very common phrase at the beginning of the pandemic. I mean, behind that sort of flattening the curve concept was a mathematical model that was sort of integrated with data to try and estimate if we put these particular measures in place, this is what the spread of the disease or the impact on health systems might look like. So I think more often than not, people are interacting with data and statistics more than they think. I think that's a good one. It's everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> and mostly it's for good. Mostly it's for good. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. This is a fairly aspirational question I'm going to throw in here. How do you see statistics, other than outside of health, because obviously there's quite a, a close link between the research that you're doing and the outcomes of patients and changes to systems, but can you think of any other examples where statistics is shaping the world that we live in? It's a big question. That is a very aspirational question. I'm going to answer aspirationally 
And I think wherever data is, statistics can help change the way we see the world. So I think sort of the immediate example that comes to my mind is the issue of climate change. So we sort of have decades and decades of data to monitor the impacts of climate change. And so to make the most of the complexity and the volume of that data, we need skilled statisticians to be able to, first of all, how to handle that data, to process it, and to actually go through the, the process of analysis to generate information that can help us inform climate change policy and sort of what our next steps are to hopefully reduce emissions. So for me, that's quite outside of the lane of what I work in. But, you know, wherever data is, I think statistics can help us make sense of, you know, the beautiful mess that is data. I think, you know, when you collect data in the real world on real people or on real processes, it's always going to be messy and complex. So having the skills to actually interrogate that to come up with key messages and a narrative is really important. And I think that's something statistics has always done, but it's just the type of data has evolved over time as well. Yeah, the type and the quantity and just like the speed at which you're able to capture data is just, even just thinking about weather, like it used to be a person, well, I mean, sometimes it still is, but a person with a checking each morning how much rain there was. And, and now we can have stations all over the country automatically collecting data and yeah, it's mind-boggling, I think. <laughs> and it, when you start thinking about it, you just have far out. This is Yeah, cool. drowning in data. <laughs> <laughs> we are. <laughs> we are, indeed. And just to start wrapping up, have you got a virtual high five, a shout-out for someone or someone who you think is doing an awesome job and just deserves a COVID-safe virtual high fives? Absolutely. Every chance I get, I have to give a virtual high five to the Statistical Society of Australia. So this is a national society that represents statistical expertise in Australia. So they do a lot of work in science communication and particularly professional development and networking for statisticians. So I think over the past few years, this has been absolutely critical given, you know, we haven't been able to meet in person. The society creating those opportunities for us to stay connected and learn from each other and keep up professional networks. I think they just do an incredible job, even whether it's through organizing conferences or workshops, or they've recently started a mentoring program as well to help early career statisticians and you know who are trying to sort out their career pathway or just after some general support on working as a statistician. Because I think quite often a lot of statisticians are working in isolation. So they might be the only statistician within their team. So they don't necessarily sort of have those everyday connections so the statistical society of australia does amazing work so absolutely high fives to them i love it okay lots of high fives to the statistical society and it sounds like they are a drop by if you're interested in a career in statistics yes. and they are on twitter <laughs> they're also on twitter so we'll retweet them absolutely thank you so much for coming on the show dr nicole it has been delightful and highly educational Awesome. Thanks, Amelia. It's a pleasure that you've had me here. Thanks for tuning in. If you like this episode, please pass it on to someone else who you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to support Avid Research this year, that would be amazing. Uh, you can buy us a coffee. Head to avidresearch.com.au and there'll be a link. Buy me a coffee and you can support us with a one-off little coffee payment. Thanks so much for listening. You're a legend. Bye.